0: Good morning. I would have you turn in your Bibles to the Book of Revelation. That's the last book of, of the 66 books. Book of Revelation we'll be reading chapter three. As it is my custom, I usually do the introduction first, and then we read and pray. So, if you're at Revelation, when I get there, you'll already be there, and we can read together. Come to Bethlehem and see Him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee Christ the Lord the New. Then it goes, glory to God in the highest. We have been celebrating and concentrating our efforts on Christ's birth for the last 42 days. All eyes have been fixed on the baby in the manger. Even the secular radio station WTRY started playing Christmas music on November the 1st. The self-help experts say that in order to create a habit, you must do something for at least 30 days, and we have 12 more days than that. But what happens eight days after Christmas? After all the presents and the week of returns, some of us experience an emotional letdown. Others, an emotional crash. After all that joy to the world, which doctrine do we hang our hope? Where do we look for help now? In the manger? On the cross? In the tomb? What is Jesus' current ministry to the church? As we study the book of Revelation, or actually chapter 3 this morning, we shall see that Jesus' current ministry is where we should hang our hope. Jesus' present ministry to the church is intercession and advocacy. In the letter of the Church of Laodicea, Jesus is, one, revealing our sin, two, sanctifying his saints, three, inviting sinners to salvation, and four, affirming his promise. Actually, this is the pattern of all seven letters. So if you're there, I'm going to be reading Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. So that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice... And opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. The spirit says to the church, let's pray. What we know not, teach us what we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are two parts to the book of Revelation. Chapters 1 to 3 and 4 to 22. The first part is historical. These events actually happened in time past and are come from real places. Outside the description of Christ and the multiple names used of the church and how it's described, everything else is literal. Most of the book of Revelation can be better understood by simply reading and studying the Old Testament. It is far more beneficial to study God's word than to study charts, graphs, and timelines. The first 11 verses of Revelation are like an introduction. It introduces John and Jesus. Actually, it's the other way around. It introduces Jesus, and then John starts to speak. The first few things said about Jesus is that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of the earth. You'll find that in verse 5. This will be elaborated further in Revelation 3.14. The overarching theme of the book of Revelation is worship. The seven letters point us to who we are to worship and why. The end of the book declares that the one we worship is the one who wins in the end. There is a historical context centered around each of the seven churches. But we are only going to focus on the city of Laodicea this morning. Before we look at the church of Laodicea, let us turn our attention to the one who is addressing that local church. In each letter, Jesus describes himself using metaphors, which points back to the Old Testament, and to highlight a different aspect of his ministry. In the letter of the church of Laodicea, Jesus begins with these words, The words of the amen. For us, we don't think too much about that word amen. We might think of it as an ending to a prayer. But you will find the meaning of this word not in charts and timelines, but in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. So if you would turn with me so we can study together in chapter 65, Of Isaiah. Don't worry, we won't be jumping around in the Bible too much today, but I want you to at least put your eyes on it. In chapter 65 of Isaiah, God spreads out his hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. You'll find that in verse 2. Elsewhere in Isaiah 65, God will deal with those people who claim to be holy, yet their actions didn't reflect God's holiness. And he says in verse 6, Indeed, I will repay into their lap and measure payment for their former deeds. God promises to destroy the wicked and preserve a remnant. Once he destroys the wicked, he will create a new earth, where the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. That's all the way in verse 25 of 65. This is the new earth that only God can create. The one who inaugurates this new creation will change the heart of the wolf and the lion. This may not seem like a miracle to you, but those who are around Wild animals know the risk. Just two days ago, a 20-year-old cleaner was bit by a tiger in, Florida, in a Florida zoo. And just last week, a French zoo closed temporarily after a pack of nine wolves escaped. A local official told the AFP, Associated French Press, news agency that the zoo needed to be closed until security concerns were fixed. The park owner, Savoie Ferrara, he said, four wolves were sadly killed by the park personnel due to the abnormal and dangerous behavior of some of them. This zookeeper and those who've been around wild animals know how predictable or unpredictable and dangerous they can be. It would take a divine miracle to change the nature of these wild animals who but God alone can change the heart of a wild beast and give it a new nature? But God is not just going to change the heart of a wild beast, He will create in humans a new heart. Did not David pray in Psalm 51:10, Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me? Why would David pray this? He knew what we all know: we cannot worship a holy God unless he does a divine work in our heart. We have a sin problem, and only God alone can forgive sins and give us a new heart. Maybe just a simple reading of God's word this morning has brought conviction to your soul. You have been feeling dirty on the inside. Maybe you're feeling a sense of doom, a feeling like your life is quickly coming to an end then it may be that the Holy Spirit is shining God's light on your need for him. If you are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now, then pray as David prayed, Lord, create in me a new heart. This chapter in Isaiah declares that the creator and maker of heaven and earth has the power to create in humans a new heart. The scriptures declare whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is not too early in this message to stop and ask God right now to create in you a new heart. It is not too late in your life for you to cry out to the Lord. You don't have to wait. Pray now, and you can talk to one of the elders, hear about what you prayed right after the service. So we will take our time and get an understanding of Isaiah 65 because it is the key that unlocks the true meaning of the letter to the Laodicean church. Now, the God of Isaiah 65 says that he will call a remnant, and that remnant shall be called by another name. And the one who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of the amen. There it is. The word we found in Revelation 3.14, the words of the amen. Isaiah 65 goes on to say that it is the God of the Amen that will create a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus took this title and applied it to himself. So what is Jesus declaring in Revelation 3.14? He is the God who will create new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is telling these Christians in Laodicea, the Laodicean church, that he is God. The witness to the new creation promised in the book of Isaiah. The inaugurator of the new creation can create the new heavens and a new earth. But more relevant to the Christians in Laodicea, he can create within them and us a new heart. And what about this phrase, the faithful and true witness? It also refers to the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament theme. I would not have you turn there. You can, but I don't want to have you going back and forth. It is a reference to Isaiah 43, 10 and 12. God has called the nation of Israel to be a witness for him. To witness the truth that besides him there is no other savior. Adam failed. The patriarchs failed. The kings of Israel failed. And the whole nation as a whole, the nation of Israel, failed to be a faithful witness. But Jesus comes along, or he came along, and became the second Adam. Adam was tempted by the devil and fell. Jesus was victorious when he was tempted by the devil. King David failed to be the faithful witness. But King Jesus faithfully rode into Jerusalem and fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Jesus was the faithful witness to the fact that there is no other Savior but God. The whole nation of Israel failed, but Jesus was the faithful all the way to the grave. So Jesus not only declares he is the firstborn of the new creation and will create a new heaven in the future, he is the divine Amen, the faithful and true witness to his own resurrection. As the beginning of the new creation of God. According to Gregory Beale, Isaiah 43, 10 to 12 underscores Jesus is fulfilling the prophesied role of the true and faithful Israel. Why is this so significant for you and me? It is not about cleaning yourself up so that you can be faithful. The scripture says that though we are faithless, he remains faithful. It is not about remaining faithful to the end, but to live in the completed work of Christ. You can be made acceptable to God today and compare and complete in him if you just come. It would be so wonderful to stop your striving and start resting and resting in the finished work of Christ. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. And what does the Lord say? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into the judgment, but has passed from death to life. John five twenty four. As we return to the text, we see Jesus speaks to the Laodicean Christians, and the first thing he says is, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Here is Jesus is revealing their sin to them. There are actually seven churches, and five of the churches, five of out of the seven churches say the same four words, I know your works. But immediately after he says that, he gets specific to that particular church. For the Laodicean church, he says, you are neither cold nor hot. He didn't say that to the Ephesian church or the church of Smyrna. He just said this to the Laodicean Christians. And as an insightful thing here, though, God has a message for each one of these churches. And he has a message for each one of the people in those churches. What a wonderful God we serve. Now, this has traditionally been, would you be rather hot nor cold? Now, this has traditionally been understood as if you're hot for Jesus, you are following him with your whole heart. If you're cold for Jesus, then you hate him. Jesus said, I would rather you be cold nor hot, but since you are in the middle, lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now you are all thinking individuals. Do you think Jesus would say or was saying, I would rather you love me or hate me, but don't be apathetic? I know what's going on in your mind is, yes, that's what it says, but but slow down. Think about it. An understanding of the historical background of this scripture will help us. There are three major cities in that region. Heropolis, Colossae, and Laodicea. Laodicea is to the southwest of Heropolis and Colossae. Laodicea was uh, maybe about 10 miles from each one of them, this was a tri-city area and they had roads and pipelines that connected the three cities. Two water funnels were connected to Laodicea, one coming from Heropolis and the other one coming lower from Colossae. So they had these water pipes coming from here and water pipes coming from there. Heropolis was known for their hot springs. The waters would reach temperatures for up to 95 degrees. The people believed that the waters had healing properties and could cure anything from rheumatism, bone ailments, and even brain deficiencies. We know that this is not too far-fetched, maybe the brain deficiencies, but the others know. We know that because soaking in a hot bath can relax muscles and lower stress levels. Right? We know that. There is a purpose for extremely hot water, but by the time it reached Laodicea, from the tunnels, it had cooled down, and it arrived lukewarm. In the city of Colossae, they had very cold water. It came from the snow and rain fell streams. Cold baths are good for blood circulation and reduces muscle inflammation. Anybody who knows any athlete or has done any athletics, knows what you should do. After you exerted yourself, you hurt yourself, you get into cold water, sometimes ice water. There's a purpose for that. By the time the water from Colossae reached Laodicea, it had warmed up, and when it finally arrived, it was lukewarm. The Laodicean Christians knew exactly what Christ was communicating to them. There is a purpose for hot water and a purpose for cold water. There's no purpose for lukewarm water. Again, if you didn't know all that geography, you could look at Isaiah 65 and it will put you on the right road. The Israelites in Isaiah 65 had one job, to be a witness for Israel or to be a witness of God. If they didn't do that, What was the point of their existence? Remember, in Deuteronomy, God God had called them and said, you're not a major nation. You're not big. You're small. I just called you to proclaim my glory. That's the main reason I called you. So if you're not doing that, then what's the point? Fast forward to the Christians in Laodicea. If they were not witnesses of his goodness, what was the point of the church in that city? They didn't provide healing for sin sick people, and neither did they refresh others with the good news of God. Here at this church, Clifton Park Community Church, are you sharing Christ and praying for others to be saved? Are you helping to heal the brokenhearted and binding the wounds of the lame? Or do you just come to church and try to be a good person? You were placed here to be a witness for Christ in this community or whatever community you came from. Commit today to share Christ with someone this week. And just a thought. Some of you are so shy, you will run under a rock as soon as a cat comes. You're just shy. You can't can't talk to anyone. That doesn't stop you from going in your closet and praying. Connect with someone else. Connect with someone who loves to share the gospel and say, hey, you, John, hey, you, Barry, I will be praying for you. Just tell me who who you're going to share with and I'll pray for you. You can do that. And you can share in sharing Christ with others. Amen? Are you helping to refresh others with the good news of reconciliation, the message that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but has placed the sin of the world on Christ? It is a refreshing message, like cold waters, that people don't have to work for their salvation because God has done all the work in Christ. People just have to believe on the one that the Father has sent. If you are not an agent of healing or an agent of refreshing, then you are good for nothing. Yeah, I said it. Like lukewarm water. And Jesus said, I will spit you out of his mouth. Please repent and embrace Christ so that you can live for him and be a witness. So what was the problem with these Laodicean Christians? What caused them to be good for nothing? Well, they said it. They declared it loud with an exclamation point. I am rich. Is the exclamation point actually in the scriptures? No. I just emphasized it. But it says, I am rich. They had sufficient reason to make that claim. Laodicea was the home of the great center for banking and finance. Laodicea was the first city that in that area to import quality knitting wood, wool, W-O-O-L, wool. This is a kind of a black wool, right, to keep you warm. And Laodicea was well known for its school of medicine, creating a special eye solve. Laodicea was the great center of banking and finance. The city of Laodicea was so rich that after they suffered an earthquake in 60 A.D., they refused aid from Rome, and said, we'll build it up ourselves. They used their own wealth to rebuild their city. They didn't go to FEMA. Mm -mm. With all those resources, it's no wonder that they declared, I'm rich. Not only did they declare that I'm rich, but they also said, I have prospered, and I need nothing, verse 17. They didn't need the Lord for money. They didn't even need the Lord for their healing. They had this medical center. Their expensive clothes, they didn't need the lord for clothing. They were a city whose citizens pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. But Jesus came and saw right through to the human heart and said, "You are naked. You are poor. You are blind. You are wretched." Any person who lives in a prosperous family or a prosperous city or a prosperous nation will be tempted but to put their trust in riches. Brethren, you live in a prosperous nation. This is a prosperous region. Most of you don't worry about clothing or your health. We are part of the richest state in America. You say, ah, no, 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 no. Texas is the richest state. Well, to the outside world, they didn't send planes to hit the Texas center. They hit the pl- they sent planes to hit the World Trade Center, which is in New York. We live in the most prosperous state. The world knows it. And this is what they do. We trust in our riches, not in Christ. We have that temptation. But Christ's message for the lay of the sins and us, you are wretched, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. These are the things they trusted in, and these are the things we are tempted to trust in as well. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Jesus said, buy from me gold that has been refined in the fire. We are blind, but if the Holy Spirit is doing a work in you right now, then pray this prayer. Open thou my eyes, Lord, that I may see wondrous works from your law. Jesus counsels the church to buy from me gold refined by fire. What kind of gold does Jesus have? Jesus has pure gold, gold that has been refined by the fire. The world offers us fool's gold. In this life, We have riches, but in the latter life, we have riches that are everlasting. These riches are forevermore. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the faithful son who was raised from the dead. Jesus has the gold of new life and life everlasting. Jesus has the goal of the wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Jesus has the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and Jesus has the gold refined by fire for the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. Jesus counsels us to buy from him gold. This is the message for the unbeliever. Jesus says that you are poor and need to buy For me, gold that has been tested in the fire. And this message is for the believer. We have a wonderful, wonderful book downstairs that I'm going to quote from. It's uh, Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly. And he says on page 189, It is one thing to believe that God has put away and forgiven all of our failures that occurred before the new birth. That is a wonder of mercy, unspeakably rich. But these were sins committed while we were still in the dark. It's another thing to believe God continues just as freely to put away all our present failures that occur after the new birth. I may be the only one who struggles with that. But when I think about my sins in the past, it's easy to see that that's under the blood well, what about the sins from yesterday? Do you go around kicking yourself saying, I can't believe that, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. How did I do that? I can understand why my neighbor does that. I can understand my coworker does that. How did I do that? Does this describe you? Are you living under a barrel of guilt? How can I be so spiritually slow? Why aren't I farther ahead in my walk with the Lord? How can I keep sitting against the light I have so richly received. See, this is why 1 John 1, 1.9 is so comforting. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John wrote this to the believer. To you and to me. The verb is in the present. It doesn't say if we confessed back then. It doesn't say already confessed. Jesus was ready to receive those saints in Laodicea just as graciously as he receives us. Brother, sister, turn to Christ. His heart is to receive you back. He is not like us. The Laodiceans had the worldly eye solve, but Jesus has the divine eye solve, one which will enable you to see the kingdom of God. So what is Jesus' ministry now? It is found in verses 15 to 18. He is shining the light on our works. He knows our works. He knows what idols we are placing our trust in. This is his current ministry, exposing our sin, giving us sight so we see our sin and repent of it. Jesus is not only exposing our sin, he's reproving and disciplining those he loves. And when he exposes our sins, he expects us to be zealous and repent. Again, Watson, that's Thomas Watson, is helpful here. When he says, confession of sin endears Christ to the soul. If I say I'm a sinner, how precious will Christ's blood be to me? Every time we confess our sins we are in turn confessing I am a sinner. I missed the mark. And so how much do we treasure? How much would we treasure God's atoning work? One of the components of repentance is confession of sin. It's a verbal agreement. Confession is one of the components of repentance. But why should we repent? It's because It endears us to Christ because Jesus' current ministry is sanctification. We see it here in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And last time I'm going to probably quote from Dave Ortland. He says, one of the most neglected doctrines in the church today is the heavenly intercession of Christ. When we talk about Christ's intercession, we are talking about what Jesus is doing now. End of quote. We started this message with what is Jesus doing now? Jesus is interceding and advocating. He is pointing out our sin and calling us to repentance. We see that in verses 15 to 18. In verse 19, Jesus is sanctifying us by proving and disciplining us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus' current ministry is to, one, reveal our sin, two, sanctify his saints, and in verse 20, Jesus is inviting sinners to salvation. This this was Jesus' ministry. This was his mission. From the very beginning of his ministry, when he came on the scene, he preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark 10, 45, he said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And in Luke nineteen ten, Jesus said, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. Well, if this was Jesus's ministry from the beginning, what is the difference now? Well, Jesus is inviting sinners, you and me, to repent and come to him, but he's not riding a donkey. He's not praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not pleading for sinners to come to him from the cross. No, Jesus is calling sinners to repentance from a position of authority, position of the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is calling sinners to repentance from a position that he's now, has all authority. We now see Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He is seated on the right hand of God. He is the initiator of a new creation. And all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He is the exalted Jesus, not the suffering Jesus on the cross. Jesus is inviting sinners to eat at his table. He has prepared because he's conquered sin and the grave. Jesus is knocking. I know you've heard multiple messages about Jesus knocking. The question is, though, how is Jesus knocking? Is he... Like he's dying? Like he's like, please, come, please. Is he... Is he kind of, you know, giddy, cheery? Hey, come on, join me. Well, I don't know how he's knocking, but he's knocking from a sense or from a position of authority. He's not begging you, right? We usually eat dinner with those whom we are at peace with. We are able to eat at Jesus' holy table because the wages of sin and the price of holiness was paid by him. A table is usually food shared by close family and friends. Didn't Jesus say, though, I no longer call you strangers, strangers? But friends, Jesus is inviting us to the table of peace. This is not the Passover meal in Exodus when you had to eat quickly because death was coming. No, you sit down and you rest and you enjoy. This is a peace meal. And at the head of the table is the one and only peacemaker. He made peace between God and man. Come and relax at Jesus' table. He's knocking, and I'm pleading that you would answer the call. He is calling to you to repentance. If you hear his voice, then repent and embrace Jesus as your Savior. He is strong, and he is conquering king. From that position, Jesus is inviting us to his table. Jesus is revealing our sin. Jesus is, too, sanctifying his saints. Jesus is inviting sinners to salvation, and lastly, Jesus is affirming his promise. Jesus' promise is in the book of Revelation chapter, I believe it's 21. He says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is a permanent throne. You'll never have to wonder if you'll be replaced by a substitute. This is the buying of gold that Jesus was referring to. Jesus called himself a shepherd. And like a shepherd, Jesus guards his children in his arms. He carries them all day long. This is not the first time Jesus declared a promise to his people. So what makes this different? Jesus is making this promise from a position of authority. He said... We who conquer will sit on his throne. We are secure in Christ. Do we believe his words? The London Baptist Confession, chapter 17, verse 2, or paragraph 2, doesn't have verses. Paragraph 2 says, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which arises, all the certainty and infallibility thereof. We can be encouraged we don't have to fret. Where do we find help eight days later and, and 300 more days until December rolls around again? At the throne of Jesus where he's revealing our sin, inviting us to eternal life, sanctifying us by intercession for us and affirming his promise. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. If anyone has the authority and the power to promise a secure salvation and a future resurrection, it is the inaugurator of the new creation, the firstborn of the dead. This promise, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, is spoken by the one who is the faithful and true. These are the words of the amen, the beginning of God's creation. How sure a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. His excellent word has been given to us so that we can be wise unto salvation. It has been given to us so that we can build our faith and assure us that we have a hope beyond the grave. Trust in God's word this morning. Resolve to grow closer to Christ by reading, believing, and trusting in God's word. Christmas 2021 is over. Our hope must be in something other than our 42 days of happiness. We put our trust in Christ who is currently working on our behalf. Where do we look for hope now? In a manger? On the cross? In a tomb, the book of Revelation tells us that the work of the cross is finished. The resurrection is once and for all, and Christ has ascended into heaven. But what Jesus the Christ is doing now is interceding and advocating. He is is revealing our sin to us, sanctifying his saints, inviting sinners to salvation, and affirming his promise. Turn to Christ. Believe in him. And bring all your doubts to him. The one who can help your unbelief. Let's pray. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, and accessible, hid from our eyes, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Our Heavenly Father, you are incomprehensible, but prayer-hearing God. Known, but beyond knowledge, revealed, but unrevealed. Our wants and welfare draw us to you. Our God, attend us in every part of our arduous and trying pilgrimage. We need the same counsel, defense, comfort we found at our beginning. Let our faith be more obvious to our conscience, more perceptible for those around us. Let us not be lukewarm. Good for nothing. But let us be faithful to what you've called us to be witnesses, to just witness about your goodness and the fact that you are the only Savior of the world. We thank you and we commit these words in the Word of God to your people. Help us, we pray, to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.